Alicia. What are you drinking? Are we back in New Zealand? Back? Yeah. Where, when were we there? For bad taste. Oh, that's right. You were asleep. It's okay. I, <laughs> that's not how I expected my first trip to New Zealand. Did you already block that episode out of your memory? Gone. <laughs> Probably for the best. I think so. It was a mess. Yeah. So uh, you asked me what I was drinking. Yeah, you got a beautiful looking beer. It looks so refreshing and I cannot wait to taste it. I have, once again, a beer from, I think it's safe to say at this point, this is one of my favorite breweries. I think it's pretty safe. This is the Einstock Brewing Company, and this is an Icelandic Arctic lager with dry hops. Anytime you preface something with Icelandic, it just sounds like it's going to be good. It just sounds crisp and cool and yeah. refreshing, right? It's fucking hip. Yeah. I'm going to try it. Beer. It is. It smells refreshing. It smells dry hoppy. Does it? Yeah. Goddamn delicious. Goddamn delicious, It's huh? goddamn delicious. Can I try your goddamn delicious, dude? Yep. That's the perfect amount of hops for me. Not too bitter, but it's got a bite. Goddamn delicious. <laughs> Very nice. I got you one, too, so next time you want a lager, it's all yours. What are you drinking? It looks very similar to mine. It really does, doesn't it? Yeah, same color. I wonder if they taste the same. Probably yeah. not. I got another Smog City Brewery, which they're becoming one of my favorites. Nice. I mean, no one's going to top Stone, I don't think. But of course. They're, they're a close second as far as consistency and just persistently cranking out bangers. Yeah. Um, this is their 10th anniversary IPA. It's got a, a whole special blend of Stratra, Centennial, and Chinook. My favorite of all hops. Nice. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> I love Chinook hops. <laughs> so at least my favorite to say. Oh, yeah. Yeah? It's tasty. Is it? Can I try it? You can. Will you like it? I don't know. Yeah. I've liked a couple of their... I forgot what they specifically call them, but their hop rotation series. Yeah. A couple of those have been really good. Fresh. Yeah, it's a little bit too bitter for me. Hmm. I can see why you like it, though. It is a fresh beer. They make... I love a fresh beer. Oh, I do, too. Yeah, this one is very... The one that I'm drinking is very fresh and crisp and just really nice. Well, I'm glad we have some tasty, delicious beers to guide us through our discussion on Zodiac. I just have to say up front, I was really talking up this movie at the end of the last episode... I said, it's amazing. You have to watch it. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor. It's so good. I do not remember it being that boring. I don't think that we were ready for this because I also didn't quite remember how much of not a horror this is. Like, this is not a horror movie. This is super not a horror movie. Not at all. So my apologies <laughs> to all y'all out there. The first maybe 20 minutes of this is a horror movie. Yeah. But that's it. Well, that's out what of, I remembered. <laughs> out of almost three hours, 20 minutes of it is I, about a, yeah. in an actual horror movie. I just had this image in my head of those particular scenes and then Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr.'s faces. And so I had, you were in like cream heaven. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. But like, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> So that I, I think that it's unfair because we went into this obviously looking for a horror movie, ready to watch a horror movie, and that's not what this is. And we we're also getting interrupted with stuff, so what is already like a three-hour movie 
took almost five hours to watch, it feels like. Yeah. Man, it was a slog. Yeah. So I didn't necessarily expect it to be a full-blown horror movie. I knew that it wasn't. I just thought that it would be a little more than it was. I, and I think it is, but we were getting interrupted with things going on. I don't even remember exactly what it was. I think some of it had to do with Scout and trying to get information or inside information from your mom and like different things going on. And we just kept on getting interrupted for long intervals. And this is not the type of movie that should be interrupted for any reason. And it's already almost a three hour movie. Right. And I was upset. About and it's that. hard to keep that pace going and be involved with it as far as like timeline goes when you're breaking it up like that. Yeah. At least I had a hard time with it. I would be like, where are we? What year is it? What's happening? And I don't think the movie is necessarily does a, you know, has a hard time keeping that consistency going. I think we just had a hard time because we were breaking. Yeah. And I did have a really hard time with that. Like, it seemed like every few seconds, the words were popping up on the screen where it was like, two days later, six hours later, three months later, 14 years later, like just constantly throughout the movie. And that was really, really hard for me to keep up with. And it was a lot. And I was saying to you before, I feel like it's, to be fair to Zodiac, this came out in 2007. And it is really hard to watch anything like this after having seen the first season of True Detective. And it's specifically hard to watch this movie after seeing Mindhunter. Yeah. On Netflix. It like, really is. It really, those really spoiled me for these kind of, you know, procedural crime drama movies. And this was just, I had it built up so much higher in my memories. I yeah, I think that's bored. completely fair. Yeah. I still think it's a good movie. We've just seen better shit since then. It is a good movie. I would say it is expertly crafted. It looks gorgeous. I it think, looks I think amazing. I think it's... <laughs> It's the best kind of good. <laughs> it's a technically good movie. Yes. I think it's very technically good. That is exactly what it is. It is technically good. Yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> it's a technically good movie. But there's no Boy, one... Boy, was I bored, though. <laughs> there's no one thing that I can look at and say, wow, they really dropped the ball on this, or this was amateurly done it was like everything about expertly like, done the especially just the cinematography and the film work and the acting was very good beautiful although i do have to say personally there is one thing that they dropped the ball on what's that trent oh you're right we were talking about that yeah this should have been scored by trent Reznor. that's one of my favorite duos in cinema oh i know david fincher and trent reznor they got it they got a good man thing going were you trying to score it in yeah. your own head like based on what mm-hmm. you know of his music means oh, you yeah. like oh this would have been good here a couple piano notes there it really needed that yeah it would have been nice i also understand that for the time it came out 2007 this wasn't really the trend at the time but i really think this would have been so much better as a series you know it's funny you should say that because I, I agree with you, but I also had read one of the fun facts of this movie was that the reason why David Fincher actually got the job for this and they like they wanted him. I can't remember the guy's names right now, but it's the other it's like the writer and producer, the other writer, James Vanderbilt, James Vanderbilt. And there's one other dude, Brian something, I think I dropped the ball. <laughs> I don't know, Brian, just James. Anyways, those two guys, they're the ones who got the rights for this book that this is based off of oh well it's actually even funnier than that now that i'm mentioning it so this almost could have been a disney movie what yeah how explain so disney because it's <laughs> disney and they own everything they oh, okay. actually own the rights to i have nobody's names on me what's the dude's name robert graysmith thank you disney actually owned the rights to robert graysmith's two books what yeah why would they want that because they're disney that doesn't make sense <laughs> And they owned them for like a decade. So Disney owned the rights to Robert Graysmith's two books. And I think they owned them for like a decade. And they had been somewhat actively looking to figure out how to make a movie out of this. They were looking at making a series out of it. And it just kept on falling through the cracks and falling through the cracks. And it wasn't working. It wasn't working. And then finally it ended. And that's when Peter Vanderbilt. James Vanderbilt. James Vanderbilt. That's when him and the other dude scooped it up. 
and actually got the rights to it and started moving forward. Okay. And I guess at the same time, Finch was in the process of working on a mini series of the Black Dahlia murders. Oh, was, I would have loved to see him I take know. that on. So I guess, and that was like supposed to have a huge budget. I think it was like a $65 million budget or something like that. And they were going to do this eight part mini series. Oh my God. And it was like, everything was going and somehow that dropped out. And then they got that other director to make the movie, which, which I recall not being good at all. I so hated I that. That's one of my most hated that. movies. But then I think that Peter and the other guy saw Seven, because that had already come out by the time this was available, so they already knew what David Hunter was capable of, yeah. and they knew about his... He did Panic Room. Basically, they knew about his interest and his ability to take the concept of a serial killer and make a movie. Yeah. And they're like, this dude... Um, so that's how he actually came to... I forget exactly what started all this other than the fact that... Oh, the miniseries. Yeah. So he was working on the miniseries, and that's how he got the job. Oh, wow. I hate, like, finding out about something that... Could have been. Could have been. I know. I would have loved that so much. Can he just do every serial killer series slash movie? Not every, but just on? do a lot. But, like, that type. Or, like, season three of Mindhunter would be great. That would be nice. I would really like that. We can't just keep watching it over and over and over forever. I guess we could. We haven't seen that one twice. We've seen the first season twice. Okay. We're due for a rewatch pretty soon. I'm down. After we watched True Detective for what, the fourth <laughs> <Seven> time. time. <laughs> so good. I just, I remember this movie being so intense and so good. And those scenes with the Zodiac are horrifying. The scene by the lake, which I'm sure we'll talk about in detail that scene has haunted me and stuck with me since the first time we saw this movie, and it's the first thing I think of when I think about this movie. Absolutely, and I, I think he does a really good job, and, and you know, and that it's all captured in the first twenty minutes. And I have some ideas behind that, or some thoughts on it as well. But one of the things that David Fincher said that he was going for in this, and I think he did a really good job, is that he was very, very adamant that like the victims stories be told and whoever that they were going to focus on like everything had to be documented in police records he's like i'm not there's so much hearsay in this case yeah and there's absolutely. so many like he said she said kind of bullshit and he's like he refused to have anything filmed or documented that was involving zodiac that was not verified by police reports also, when it comes to those scenes, they they actually, like, the costume designer was given, like, unprecedented access into the archives of the police records and photographs and everything so they can get everybody's wardrobes down to exactly what they were wearing and the type of fabric it was and the colors and the cars. And so much so that within uh, the lake scene in particular, they actually flew in. Oak trees. No shit. Yeah. Because that happened. According... And the landscape had changed over time. And they yeah, the landscape it. had changed over time. And according to Brian Hartnell, is the gentleman that survived that stabbing. And that's what he said took place. The like, Zodiac hiding behind the oak tree. And there's like those two trees there. And so David Fincher made sure that everything... And it's especially with those scenes and anything involving Zodiac was exactly as much as possible how it took place. Wow. And that's why there's like, you know, even when it comes to what Zodiac was wearing and if and when you see him, and that's why there's so very little of, you know, like the Zodiac character in the movie. Yeah. You only see him in the scenes where there is a surviving victim. Because right. that is the only person that could verify it in a police record. I did read a little bit about that, like how he was extremely dedicated to accuracy and only focused on the stories where there was a surviving victim who could corroborate everything that happened and that was on record. And I have mad respect for that. And there is definitely no sensationalism in this movie whatsoever, which I really appreciate. Very much, So I, yeah. I have mad respect for, for that. The only, I guess the biggest issue that I have with it was... I wish that, like he did in Mindhunter and some of his other movies of this nature, I wish that to make up for the lack of sensationalism, 
that he would have put a little bit more into the characters and made me care about these characters a little bit more. The way that I felt was if I'm going to spend almost three hours watching a movie, a movie with incredible actors, especially Robert Downey Jr. and Jake Gyllenhaal, who I love, I better give a shit about them. And I didn't. I didn't give a shit about them. I had issues with that. That's understandable, for sure. I I will say that as far as characters go, obviously Robert Graysmith is a large character in this, which is who Jake Gyllenhaal plays. Yeah. Because it's based off of kind of... Well, obviously, it's based off the Zodiac murders and all that. But as far as the kind of interpersonal stuff that you're seeing, most of the movie is based on Robert Graysmith's book, who is the cartoonist that worked at the San Francisco Chronicle. Right. And kind of his obsession with this movie and him, as well as the two surviving Zodiac victims, which is Michael McGough, I think it is, and then Brian Hartnell. Those three guys were basically balls deep with them in this movie, making sure that they got everything as close as possible. And as far as personal connection to these people, when we see kind of Jake Gyllenhaal's Robert Graysmith's life kind of falling apart with his wife and his kids and all those kind of stuff, this one thing they talk about is that even though he was working with them on the set and with the script, they didn't do anything to try to sugarcoat this guy. And he's the first person, when he watched this, he even said, watching this made me realize why my wife left me. I saw that on IMDb, and I laughed out loud reading that. Like, as soon as it finished, he finished reading the script, he was like, God, now I see why my wife divorced me. (laughs) So I think in that sense, if someone who went through that can watch this and have that to say about it, not like oh, that's not an accurate portrayal, or what a shitty job, or yeah. whatever. I think that goes to show, even though it may not be the most connectable, relatable thing yeah. for us, at least it was done accurately and well. Again. Definitely. At least there's technically. that. Technically. <laughs> technically, it's great. <laughs> I also loved the tagline that I read for this on IMDb, which was, there's more than one way to lose your life to a killer. <laughs> I really liked that. And of course, I couldn't... The first person I thought of was, sadly, like Michelle McNamara with the Golden State Killer. Like, the obsession and being so deeply affected by a case in that way. Yeah, that's one of the things with the Zodiac Killer. So I guess, let's just do a quick rundown. Yeah, because as much as I unfortunately know about serial killers, the Zodiac was one that I never really learned about and I don't know very much about at all. While I was researching this dude more, this asshole, there was a bunch of other names that came up that I had never heard of. I don't even remember what they were. The only one I remember in particular is there's a guy called the Doodler. Oh, yeah. I've heard that one. And then that one just sounded creepy as hell. Yeah. And then there was like a bunch of other ones that just sounded, just the names themselves really sounded fucked up. I'm like, why have I never heard of these there before? There are so many serial killers. It's just killers. nonstop. Nonstop. And... The movie is incredibly technically accurate as far as what you see on the killings. Yeah. And, the, and, and in fact, the reason why we don't see what is Zodiac's first kills, uh, which took place on December 20th, 1968, is because there was no surviving victim. So there, there was really nothing to like corroborate that. And that's why David Fenter made the decision to show the first murder of 69 and not show the other one because he's like otherwise we're just basically making shit up yeah we know that they died and we are fairly confident that was zodiac but other than circumstantial evidence there's nothing that they can really say for sure happened yeah you can't be 100 percent certain and so he was like we're not going to do that i appreciate that big time big time so did you do some research on the actual zodiac murders or the case yeah, I mean, again, that's very accurate. He had what are seven confirmed, as far as the police are concerned, seven confirmed victims, five of which died. Right. So there was the the first killings were in 1968, December 20th, as I said. There's a couple of teenagers, David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen, who they talk about quite a bit in the movie, but we just never see that. And then following year, July 4th, 1969, is 
where the movie starts. And that's when Michael Michael Mago and Darlene Theron were murdered or attacked. And then Darlene died and Michael did not. And then September 27th, 1969, Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard were attacked at the lake with the brutal stabbings. And Cecilia died, Brian survived. And then October 11th, 1969 is when the cab driver, Paul Stein, was shot. And as far as the police are concerned, those are the Zodiac victims. Mm -hmm. Zodiac claims to have murdered up to 37 people. But the police are pretty confident that... He's just a lying asshole. Yeah, that's pretty typical with a lot of these serial killers. Yeah. Yeah. And really what makes this such a longstanding and kind of infamous case is there's the brutality behind it, obviously, and kind of the blatancy of it. Yeah. But more than anything, it's the fact that Zodiac just was relentless when it came to attacking the police and yeah. getting the media involved. And he was really like a PR whore. Yes, that's the perfect way to describe it. And so because of that, it became incredibly popular. Well, not popular, but infamous and known to the public. And also because of that, it became just an insane nuisance to the police. Like an infuriating thing for the police. Knowing that makes it so much more understandable in the movie when, you know, time has passed and Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Robert Graysmith, seems to be the only person left who cares about this case. Right. You kind of understand why they're fucking over it. Big time. I mean, and it, it got to a point where it's just like people were so over. It was like everywhere and people were just terrified. Yeah, terrified and probably fatigued. and Big time fatigued and it was just going on and on and on and... The thing is that these murders, again, or these these attacks and these murders took place over a relatively short amount of time. It was basically a year of attacks. And this movie spans over decades. Right. Because he continuously would write letters to the police. And that was the other thing. There's this like mystery behind not only who the fuck is this guy, but then the fact that he was using these codes that he would send in that was almost like a game show aspect to the it. ciphers, yeah. These ciphers that he would send in, and there's the first cipher, which was the three-part cipher, where he sent one-third to the three major news outlets that they he basically blackmailed into publishing. Yeah. And that was cracked by a couple of school teachers, and that's where we got the, how that was like first decoded. And then there was a couple other ciphers, and very, very recently, there had been what they called the 340 cipher. Yeah, it was December of last year. December of last year. This thing had remained uncracked all that time. That's like 50 years, isn't it? Right. Yeah, it was almost 50 years. Wow. Do you know what it said? Yeah. Fucking stupid, but... That's what I figured it. I remember being like... I don't know how else to say it. Kind of disappointed. I, it when... <laughs> is. I think everybody was. I don't know. Some people were expecting his name to be in there. I know. I was expecting something since it was, quote unquote, the most difficult cipher, yeah. right? And I'll read it, I guess. I was going back and forth, but it says, I hope you are having lots of fun and trying to catch me. That wasn't me on TV. I'm sorry, that wasn't me on the TV show, which brings up a point about me. I'm not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise. Paradise is spelled wrong. All the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me where everyone else has nothing when they reach paradise. Still spelled wrong. So they are afraid of death. I am not afraid because I know that my life is life will be an easy one and paradise death. Didn't they say that in the movie? He did mention similar concepts. Okay, because I remember him saying something about, like, having enough slaves and paradise being spelled wrong. So he just, like, it's nonsense. Yeah. 
just total nonsense. What a and there's dick. this idea behind it, at one point in the movie, you would ask like, because it almost seemed like he was, it almost seemed like he was trying to leave the guys alive. Yeah, I, w- I want to talk about that when we get deeper into the movie. But he was, you know, sending letters constantly to the news uh, outlets. He was berating and flaunting himself and the fact that the police couldn't catch him. And it was just such an infuriating case. Yeah. And again, it's not the not that there's ever like a number that deserves more attention or whatnot, but there are. Robert Downey Jr.'s character actually mentions this. That's and he plays uh, Avery, who's the journalist with the San Francisco Chronicle, where he's talking to Robert because Robert's still all passionate about this, you know, decades later. Yeah. And Avery's like, "Dude, get over it." Kind of like there's been. Do you know how many fucking killers there are out there? Do you know how many guys have killed so many more people than this asshole has? Yeah. And. It, it's it's both it's weird and true and there's something about that like it's interesting that we have serial killers that in that same time literally in that same bracket of time within that same five years or that same decade that we're out there killing twice as many three times as many people yeah as this guy did not that it makes you know what his he did any less terrible and just infuriating but nobody knows their names yeah nobody has any attention for them and it's i think it kind of again holds holds true for the movie and what david fincher was trying to show with this is that like that longevity of this case and that dwindling of passion and the fact that it was just it was draining it was draining. This was very draining to watch. And just watching... And I mean this as a as a compliment, because I think this was extremely intentional, especially after reading the actual Robert Graysmith's comment. But watching this guy, like, bore us to death with his obsession. Right. And everyone was just over it. Yeah. I mean, we probably know so much less than we do. If it wasn't for this guy. Oh, for sure. You know, because people were just done. They were fucking yeah. done. And you can't blame them. No, I really can't. Yeah, so that that was really well done. And just going back to Robert Downey Jr. real quick. I kept thinking about this while we were watching it. And about the time that this came out, which was 2007. This was really close to the time where he had his like big comeback after, I guess I could say, his fall from grace. And I felt like it was super ballsy of him to play that character during that time. (laughs) (laughs) I guess we should also mention the fact that if you don't know this already, nobody knows who the Zodiac was. Nothing's ever been proven. The movie indicates there... I have a, a list. There's basically what I gathered from the little research I did. There's basically three prime suspects that at this point both police and just the entire amateur sleuth community is convinced it's one of these three dudes right and robert graysmith as the movie be again that's based on his works a lot you right. know primarily he was convinced that it was arthur lee allen i was pretty convinced after watching this yeah i mean there's Everything they have on him is circumstantial, but, you know, you and I were talking about it, and it's really funny, because we watched this, and then over the last couple weeks, we've watched The Night Of, and it's kind of funny, because I didn't even think about it until right now, I'm making that connection, because we were watching, as we watched this, and there was just an insane amount of circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Just incredible amounts. And to me, there has to be some... And it can be just a mathematical, algorithmic limit. There has to be... And I'm not saying this to be to be glib. I mean, there, there you can calculate this to, like, a statistical improbability. Like, how many things have to be circumstantially connected to make it a statistical 
improbability to the point of guilt. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good question. I and I feel I like can't that, answer that. I feel like then. it's. Po- I, I I mean I probably if I took the time to do it, you I probably could, could answer that. I'm just what I'm saying. Reason. It's, yeah, a, it's an objective that. thing. It's super not subjective. Like you could bring this down to an objectively reasonable limit where there is too much circumstantial information, circumstantial circumstances. <laughs> right. <laughs> well said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even halfway through my beer, people. I just finished mine. I know, that's unusual for you. Well, this movie's boring and I want to drink. <laughs> but uh, and as we were watching this, I'm like, how could you... We have to be able to convict this guy. Like, it's, it's too much. I know. There's too much fucking information. But then but the night can't. of yeah. was basically the argument in the opposite direction. It makes you think about it, right? Yeah, but at that the same That was fictional, time, but... That was so fictional, it's not even funny, yeah. you know? But it does lend... At least the idea of why we have a system that's a matter of innocent till proven guilty and having more than circumstantial evidence, Absolutely. usually. Absolutely. Yeah. Although that was a very, very, very unlikely example. Yeah. yeah. But it can happen. It can happen. It can and that's happen. why we have those safeguards in place, because it can happen. But I also feel like that we could calculate it to a statistical improbability that leaves us with at least in a confidence interval that it is acceptable. Yeah. So I guess just diving into the actual movie a little bit more and the aspects of the movie that maybe worked for us and didn't work for us. I feel like we have a specific word for almost every episode that we use a lot throughout the episode. And this episode is going to be technically. So we'll talk about... Maybe starting with the technically perfect aspects of this movie. From what I remember about the way that this movie looked and felt in the cinematography, I think the very beginning of this movie was the most beautifully shot. I'm thinking specifically of... I think this was at the very beginning, because now I'm like mixing up timelines in my head. But that was when Michael and Darlene were in the car on the 4th of July, or he was in the car. She was in the car going to pick him up. And it just is this long lingering shot of the car rolling through this 1969 neighborhood on the 4th of July with music playing and fireworks. It was gorgeous. Oh, I know. I loved that. That was actually one of my favorite. As soon as the movie started up, I was like, damn. I started getting pumped for it again. Like, all right. And then I felt that way for like the first, I'd say 30 to 40 minutes. And then it just lost steam so hard that it crashed it wrecked but that intro and that shot and then leading up to the first murder a plus filmmaking right there absolutely so good the finch the finch Finch. (laughs) yeah that was that was honestly that was one of my favorite scenes too where that whole aspect is just mesmerizing mesmerizing yeah just that whole shot and the glares and the reflections and just the lighting everything about that and it just captured the vibe of these two young people on the last night of their life it was just like a compilation of the little things that you might forget to notice or appreciate on a regular day it's a great observation thank you no i think you know it was that. beautiful that really stuck with me this time around the second time around yeah really beautiful intro and terrifying the scenes with the Zodiac were truly horrific. They are, yeah. I was thinking about that. I mean, how many times we we talked about this a little bit on the Backcountry episode, you know, like how terrifying it is when you come across strangers and stuff. Yeah. But I was thinking about when we first started dating and there was times we would go up to like Holy Jim Canyon in the middle of the night. Oh, my God, And drive yeah. up that, you know, that dirt trail and just go park. And yeah, like, I'll... there's nowhere to make out. You got to go to sketchy-ass places. Yeah. yeah, and then, like, but we've had circumstances where we had, like, a group of people or dudes roll up. Yeah. And there's, like, the entire dirt road that you can come and park on and go anywhere. And they'd roll up just, like, three or four cars down. And they would just park. It's and terrifying. sit there. And you're just like, what the fuck is going on? And, you know, you hear, like, the car doors open. And I was just thinking about how terrifying that could be for a young person, especially since they saw this guy roll up. He was sketchy when he rolled by. 
and then like come back a second time and like park right oh, in front fuck. of their car and just that whole circumstance for a couple of teenagers you know 16 years old or whatever and that it's just such a horrifying scene and yeah. it, 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 i don't mean seeing as a movie scene like it's a horrifying scene in life yeah absolutely and he he does an incredible job everybody does of making every one of those scenes and every one of those victims a real person and a real thing that happened and in a society and genre that is just ultra violent and we see that type of thing over and over again it's makes it so real absolutely to the point where it, it's uncomfortable for even the most seasoned of moviegoers it absolutely is those scenes still were so hard for me to watch and had me squirming in my seat and I guess we could kind of go through those real quick because even though this is definitely not a horror movie, those scenes were almost each one of them was almost like a miniature horror movie yes. in every way. But the I'm sure this is the case with everybody who's ever seen this movie. But that scene by the lake was to me just the most terrifying scene of this movie and of most serial killer movies that I've seen. But my God, just the the whole setup where it's right in the middle of the day, broad daylight, where this couple is having a relaxing date next to the water. And this guy just walks up in an all black suit with his face covered with that. What do you call that symbol? The crossfire or cross something? Crosshair symbol. Just completely in black. And it's like, I heard somebody say something once about this type of, encounter with these killers where it might have been on a podcast but part of what makes it so terrifying to not just people watching the movie but people that this happens to in real life that these things happen to is this person just by showing up that way is already breaking so many social contracts (laughs) it's just wrong it's not everything about it is wrong and not okay yeah and that just immediately makes you feel uneasy and I don't know, just the, the fact of it being in broad daylight is just that much more terrifying because you feel like there should be somebody else there and there is nobody. There's nobody around. And just the way that he toys with them was so haunting. Like, he makes it seem like it's going to be a mugging or a robbery. He makes the woman tie up her boyfriend and then he ties her up. I think that was the order that it yeah. happened in. He asks for their wallet, their car keys, and he even has the audacity to try and make it sound like he's not going to hurt them. Like he just wants money. Like it's going to be okay. Like he's going to take their car and just leave them there. And the boyfriend, you know, trying to diffuse the tension says something like, was that thing even loaded? Cause I know people are going to ask. And then fuck man, I'm getting chills. Just thinking about it. He opens up the clip to show them that it was indeed loaded and then pulls out a knife instead And just starts stabbing the shit out of the guy in front of the girlfriend. And before he does this, it's just a lingering shot of him looking at her and saying, everything's going to be okay. Just true horror. And the stabbings in this is just... Brutal. They don't cut away. There's no mercy. It's just terrifying. Completely. One thing I read about this, and I was shocked, to be honest with you. And I think it's just because you're so enthralled and just captivated by what is taking place that you're not really looking at these little details but i didn't realize that all of the blood in this movie is cgi really yeah i guess david fincher is known for demanding just an insane amount of retakes for particular scenes i did read something about Robert Downey Jr. in All relation to that. Yeah. I read <laughs> did their, you read what yeah. he did? Yeah. I have his thing written down here. really funny. <laughs> so just, do you want to yeah. throw that in real quick? So all of the, Jake Gyllenhaal, um, what was the tech detective? Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo. And then. I feel like we didn't give him any credit. He's know, fantastic. He yeah. I love him. Yeah. He plays the uh, inspector David Tashi. Yeah. So him and then obviously. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. All three of these guys were all newbies when it came to the Finch and didn't realize what they were getting into. 
which was anywhere from five to ten to fifty retakes of the same fucking scene over and over and over and over again. No, oh, that's frustrating. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I guess the other guys were a little bit more chill about it, especially, uh, uh, was it R- R- Rodolph? What's... Mark Ruffalo? Ruffalo, thank you. Mark <laughs> Mark Ruffalo, was. he was more zen about it. It was just like, hey, it was a new experience, and I can either be pissed off this whole fucking time, or push myself and try something new. He seems like the coolest person. I know, he I seems love like a really so chill dude. Yeah. But, uh, good old... Robert Downey Jr. He quoted. He's quoted as saying, "I just decided, aside from several times I wanted to garrote him, <laughs> that I was going to give Fincher what he wanted. I think I'm the perfect person to work for him because I understand gulags." <laughs> did you read what he did on set? Oh, with the urine. He it was like leaving jars of yeah. urine all over the set. Like I said, this was very early in his comeback. He still had some shit to work through, but yeah, they. The cast didn't seem too happy about, but part of that. so part of the deal with that is because he just demands so many retakes that he decided that it would be way easier and more cost effective than having to deal. And the other the other aspect is especially with these where there is blood, which is these murder scenes. That's where he was trying to be the absolute most exact that he could, and he didn't want to rely on like squibs or blood packets and how that was going to affect the shot. And, like, you know, blood spurting in the wrong spot or something yeah. like that. And having to redo that 50 fucking times. So, all that CGI. So, it made sense. but It does, yeah. I didn't notice at all. I didn't really notice either because there was very I'm, little blood in this movie to begin with. Right. So, I wasn't really Yeah, it's not enough it. that you're like, it's an obvious thing. So, I, obviously, it was a good move. Yeah, because I feel like digital blood is usually pretty noticeable yeah. if it's a large amount. But there was really... The only time I remember seeing any blood at all was the stabbing scene. And it was the a small shooting amount. and the cab. Oh, that's right. That's right. There was some blood spatter. Basically all the All the Zodiac killings, scenes. yeah. Yeah, I guess the the last one that we can talk about is a quote-unquote horror scene that really stuck with me was the woman with her baby. Oh, yeah. Do you know where they got that? No. So, and the part of the deal, I didn't write all this down, unfortunately, it was pretty bizarre but they alluded to it or not alluded to it but they, they spoke to the guy when they were investigating arthur lee allen there was i think it was a co-worker a previous co-worker of his that they talked to and they talked to him in the movie too where the guy's like he mentioned something about like pecking off kids in a school bus do you remember that scene yeah so that that guy went to the police or was questioned by the police and eventually talked to him and I guess it was like via the guise of the idea that Lee Allen had talked about writing a book about a serial killer. So through that lens, Arthur Lee Allen had mentioned, and this was like before the killings, or at least like, I think it may have been within the, the first one or two possibly. But he had mentioned to this coworker that his serial killer would write letters to the police, would have, like, a code that he used, and that he would dress up in all black to murder these people. He mentioned just basically everything the Zodiac Killer does. Right. But one of the other things he mentioned is that he would flag young women down on the freeway, or on the highway, with the guise of helping them, and then loosen their lug nuts... And then come back around and abduct the women once their tire fell off and they were standing on the side of the road. Oh, God, that's terrible. So it was from this guy's recollection of what Arthur Lee Allen said his serial killer did that they included that scene. That's terrible. That scene was... That's fucked up. I almost forgot about... I didn't see or find anywhere because they never really even make the connection in the movie that that Zodiac at all. Yeah. They just kind of give us that terrifying scene. Something that happened. Well, they they do that thing that so many of these detective procedural movies and series do that I love, where they show you how far these different threads can pull you during an investigation yes. where you have no idea what's going on. Right. Because there's a terrifying the scene. The fucking basement scene. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. Yes. That was so creepy. Yeah. 
very good scene where he's so far down the rabbit hole and it's been decades and his wife has left him and he's just like he's scrambling gone. and yeah. he's researching these dudes and he comes across what he thinks is a very good lead of who the Zodiac Killer is. Or not even that. I think he just... He got like an anonymous tip, didn't he? Or some kind of tip? He got some kind of tip, but he also... I don't think that he thought that this guy was the Zodiac, but I thought... That guy told him he knew who the Zodiac was. Yeah, that's what it was. Something like that. And it was like somebody that he had worked with at the theater or something like that. And this guy seems to have turned out to just be some weirdo. Well, not, not just that, but he actually... Like one of the strongest pieces of evidence that... Robert Graysmith was going off of there's some other circumstantial stuff about like what movie was playing because there's this whole idea of I forget what that movie's called right now. Gemini? Is that what it's called? The one that was playing in the theater? Well the one where they say that you know man's the greatest prey or whatever. Oh no. The uh, greatest game. The most dangerous game. Yeah the most dangerous game. I think game. the movie that Jake Gyllenhaal and the detective were watching was called Gemini. Well they weren't watching a movie. They went, well, they went to the movies. No, not the detective. We're talking about the basement scene. I know. That's the movie that I thought you were talking about, though. Oh, no, no. So you're talking about so the there's a most connection, dangerous there's game. There's a connection between the Zodiac Killer and the most dangerous game because he mentions in his letters to the police or to the Chronicle about humans being the most dangerous game. Right. Right. And so yeah. that's where Robert Graysmith made the connection that this guy is a movie buff. Right. Or at least that... He knows this movie because he basically quoted it, you know, or not basically, he did. And the, this basement scene is with this guy who worked at a theater and there was a handwriting of like what movie was playing or something like that. And the handwriting analysis was the, at this point, was the most, the best match that they had for the Zodiac. Right. Like whoever wrote this. Robert Graysmith is pretty convinced this is the best match they've had, and they've looked at thousands of different handwriting samples. So he's on this track, like, whoever wrote this is probably Zodiac. And right. he worked at this movie theater, and it was for this the most dangerous game, and he's just, like, on this fucking thing. So he went to go talk to this guy who owned the, the theater. Yeah. And that employed this guy. And he's like, who, you know, can you give me more information about this guy? And as he does this, he leads him down and he lives alone and he's creepy and he brings him down to his cellar, which is creepy. And there's like kind of in this just like weird situation. And as Jake Hall's character is interviewing this guy and trying to get more information, the guy reveals that I'm the one who wrote that. Yeah. Do you think there were two killers? No. No? You don't think, or not? maybe not two Zodiac killers, but maybe like opportunists who kind of used the coverage of the Zodiac to do fucked up shit? I always think there is. Right? Because oh, the, about the this cab before. driver was so different from the other... Well, they think the cab driver was him. They think so? They think so. Okay. They're pretty convinced, apparently. You know, we've talked about this before. I'm uh, I'm under the impression that what we... We've come a very long way when it comes to understanding serial killers. Yeah. Right? But think about this is not that long ago. No. It and wasn't. how how ass backwards we were when it comes to like understanding serial killers and at all. Yeah, and this was at the very, very beginning of just starting like the just the beginning seeds of the idea of psychological profiling. Yes. And that and it's a very specific type of psychological profile. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that there is potentially people out there that are serial killers that are basically not as psychologically unstable. Yeah. As this class of serial killers that we've caught and studied. And they're smart enough to constantly change up their game, right? Right. Almost like that's the, what I would do. That's why I think that <laughs> in Dexter, the Trinity killer is like one of the most clever serial killers. Yes. Because he does not do he, you know, his his murder tactics are so not the the norm. And doesn't don't he wait fit. 30 years in between I don't think he waits 30 mm -hmm. years because he had quite a rack up, but he moved. I think it's like there's a pretty good 
duration in between and he goes to different places but the there's no even though there's always three murders that take place within like a year or something like that they're completely different killing styles yeah in a completely different area and there's basically no reason why you would ever connect these things yeah who would put that together right and i think that's such a probable thing that you may have people out there that are killing but not in such a routine simple simplistic patternistic type of way yeah and so what i'm getting at with what your 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 thought is that do i think people are out there that were using this opportunity to kill people to make it seem as though the zodiac did this and so they were looking at other areas i think that with every single murder ever yeah like how many serial killers like, their entire catalog of murders have been under the cover of other serial yeah. killers. That's, like, that shit keeps me up at night sometimes. And I, I think that there's these serial killers, I think there's very few of them that wouldn't want that extra tally, that extra notch, yeah. if you will. Like, they'll take credit for it. And so they're not going to go, like... And it, it has happened where they're like, hey, I killed, you know, these three, but I didn't kill that one. It, that has happened. Yeah. But I think that a killer not fessing to that, or at least not even, not necessarily not fessing to it, but not, that doesn't blatantly uh, deny it, it's very rare. Because why not? Why yeah. not have that? I mean, they were obviously engaging the police in this whole thing for that. That's kind of part of the psychological profile, is that God complex and this you know, intelligence and superiority. So why would you not want to seem more grandiose than you are? 100%. I wanted to ask you too, while we're speculating, I asked you about this when we were watching the movie and you said you have some thoughts on this. Do you think it was intentional? And if so, why do you think in the cases they decided to show in this movie, the man survived and the woman died? Do you think that was intentional, first of all? Well, again, they, for this, he was only showing scenes that they had like, cooperation for. Do you think that that was just a coincidence? Or do you I think, think that he I think more it, viciously attacked the women? I think he more viciously attacked the women. I, there is something to be said just in his own words about this idea that he, he seems to have this delusion that killing somebody makes them your slave in the afterlife. Right. So it makes sense that he would want the women to die. Right. But then why did he target couples so often? It seems like. It, it's hard to say. We just don't know. There, we don't there's know. So there's much so many things you can speculate case. on that. Yeah. And I feel like. I mean, the, they were all young. I, I think there's part of the speculation, I, I would say, is that there's the psychological aspect of what how people react when they're alone versus when they're with somebody is completely different and there's not that he necessarily we had all this information but it wouldn't be that hard to uh, at least deduce something like this and the fact that you know there's give the give the idea of calling for help right if you're by yourself and something happens to somebody and they need help chances are you're going to help them or any individual will like they'll, they'll call the police or they'll go over and help them themselves but if you're in a group of a bunch of people and somebody's calling for help, there's this idea that somebody else will do it. The bystander effect, yeah. Yeah. So, and, I, and there's not just, like, calling for help, but it's this idea of how, we, how you would react to something. Like, even the idea of a... They've done this with, like, fires or smoke, yeah. right? If you're by yourself and you see smoke coming through the door, you'll be like, motherfucker, there's a fire. We need right. help. But if you're in there with somebody else and that person doesn't seem to be reacting to it, you'll take way longer to do anything about it. Yeah. Because you're waiting for them to, like, kind of validate your concern. And so I think there's something that when two people are together, there's this idea of kind of feeling safe because you're there with somebody. Right. And how you're going to react or, like, will they react or who's going to do this or who's going to do this. Yeah, are they going to handle it? Right, and how are you going to do it? And there's the idea of my actions are going to have consequences for this other person. So... I think in that sense, it's easier. And they're more likely to just freeze up. And, and be willing to sacrifice, if you will, like yeah. to protect. Man, it's fucked up. It really is. 
And that woman, like, I keep going back to that woman and her baby. Like, I think the most terrifying line in this entire movie is when he says, before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. And we never see exactly what happened. I had a very vivid memory of her having to throw her own baby out the window and then jump out of the car. That didn't happen. She didn't say anything about that. She was just looking for her baby in the field. But that's like the story that I guess I yeah. made up in my head. I know. It's crazy how that works. Yeah. I think that's another thing that this movie did capture really well because you and I are just wildly speculating because we have no idea what really happened. And this movie is essentially almost three hours of people just grasping at straws and wildly speculating and reaching for anything they possibly can. Absolutely. And, and that's why you... We were going to talk about it, and I guess we're here now. And I, again, it's a technically good movie in the fact that I think it encapsulates just the whole saga of the Zodiac. It we've already touched on this, but it is a draining story. It's it a draining saga, and it's something that was just vulgar and violent for like a flash within the scope of this time frame. Yeah, and then after that, it's just been. 50 plus years of people like grasping at straws. Absolutely. And after that first 30 to 40 minutes, it was just so completely cold and clinical. Right. Completely. There was no emotional depth, no heart. And I think that that was, again, I was really, really bored. I did not remember being this bored watching this movie. And I just wanted so much more from these characters. And I wanted more reasons for emotional investment, but that doesn't seem to be how it happened. And that's the that's the thing. I, I don't think that it did happen that way. And yeah. I think these people's lives deteriorated because of this. Yeah. And that there was nothing else. There was yeah. no other human connection. There was no other story for them. And Robert Graysmith became boring and obsessed. Right. And, and I think the detective... Avery became... A sad alcoholic. I, I will mention real quick that apparently that is one thing that was embellished. Really? Yeah, like Avery did not just go and turn into a sad alcoholic. Was that like specifically for Robert Downey I think, Jr.? I, I don't know if that was like David Fincher, like, you know, <laughs> that was his way of returning the favor of the Mason Jars of Piss or That's what? That's fucked up. Um, <laughs> speculation. But, no, he continued to be a writer, and he wrote other books. I think he definitely had some hard knocks in life, um, but he did not just turn into a, a sad alcoholic That's from good. my extent. That's good. Uh, but nevertheless, I do think all of these people's lives were very much affected by these events in a very negative way, and that there really was just this boring, stubborn frustrating commitment to this asshole. Yeah. And trying to figure out what it was and who he was and why. Again, I keep going back to that tagline of there's more than one way to lose your life to a killer. Right. And this guy seems to have completely lost his life and his livelihood and his personality and just everything that made him who he was as a, a person who was who you could relate to. Just yeah. Gone. So I think, I guess what I'm going back and forth on as I watch this, because there's been so many other movies where it was about a true event or true stories that they then embellished the characters and there's yeah. like a love story or there's some other dramatic thing going on. Or like on. with Mindhunter, they really play up the, I don't want to say drama, but I guess drama between, between the characters and their home lives right. and how the job affects them and their relationships. And that's a more entertaining story. It is. And that's how... That's what I wanted. We want that in, like, the fictional... I don't know. I just... I've come to expect that from David Fincher. <laughs> like, I get that, I but that. I also... How many times have we seen things that are based on... Are supposed to be on a true event, and then they do that, and it just feels like they've sold these victims, like, made money off of these victims. For sure. And they that they've dramatized it. it and sensationalized it, and then we're mad about it. And yeah. I just feel like it's a hard line to toe. And I think he made a very conscious decision of what kind of movie he wanted to make. And that he was going to be true to the victims and to not just 
the seven victims that were physically assaulted by the Zodiac, but the victims that were taken down this decades-long path of obsession and abuse. Yeah. So in that sense, I, I can't be mad that I was bored with the fact that these people's lives were destroyed. 100%. Yeah. And I, I can't say that I'm going to knock down points on this movie because he made that, you know, made it less sensational than it could have been. Yeah. You know, I was, don't get me wrong, I was a little bored too, but the more I thought about it, the more I researched it and understand what was going on, and the fact that we did take multiple breaks in this movie, which just really dragged the fucking thing out, I I can't do it. Do I feel a rating coming on? I think it's coming. Zero to 12 beers? You go first. Me first? I'm set on mine. You're set? Don't be you're mad, not, but I'm set on You're not faltering? It. I'm not faltering, but you go first. I'm going to give it a 10. A 10? Wow. Okay. That makes sense. I'm going to give it an eight. I was so bored. I just, I can't go higher than an eight. eight. I'm giving it an eight. Yeah. Eight points of respect like and technicality. I gave Sinister an eight and I love Sinister. Still. I feel like I've been rating too high lately and I can't rate for being this bored. All right. Can't do it. A hearty, enthusiastic eight with love Cold. and respect for the Finch. It's cold as the Zodiac yeah. over here. Good pick, though. It's definitely interesting to think about and to talk about. And again, technically perfect, beautiful, amazing cast. Love the Finch. I can't believe how long it, it took to solve the cipher. I know. Especially because it seems so similar to other shit that he had already been saying. I was trying to read into a little bit more of what made this one so particularly hard. And there's, it was like a group of a few different amateur like code breakers. And I guess part of what made it difficult was the fact that the way that it's structured is that it's actually like a diagonal line that is the actual message. Oh. So even though there are symbols throughout the whole page, it's only this diagonal line that is actually, you know, makes any sense. So I understand that that makes it more complicated, but even the guy said that it's still a very basic code and you can actually find this code in like one of the, like the army manuals of like for, oh, for codes and stuff like that. And I, I'm, I'm thinking about this and I don't know anything about it, so I don't want to sound like a complete asshole, but how do you have a case this big for this long and you have the FBI working on this kind of stuff? And they already know that he's been using codes from, like, the army manuals and everything. Like, how did it not get solved and not get solved by the FBI? Well, was this at the point where everybody was just over it? I guess. You also had, which they kind of touched on a little bit in this movie, different departments just, like, refusing to work together yeah. and share information with each other. So I'm sure that had an impact, too. All right, so 10 out of 12 is very generous. Was it technically good Eight movie? out of 12 for me. <laughs> I guess one point knocked off just because Tashi's character was obsessed with animal cookies and then all of a sudden he w wasn't. Then, then he wasn't? I liked that he remembered people's birthdays. That was a nice that little a nice touch. Thing. He was a yeah. sweet man. What kind of beer would you pair Zodiac with? I think it would have to be paired with the brown. It has to be paired with a boring, a boring basic brown beer. Brown. I'll be generous. <laughs> and there was a, I think it was made by Rogue. I think you already paired that with another movie, though. Pretty All sure right. Well, then a different boring beer. <laughs> I don't drink I think you paired that with the Changeling, if I remember correctly, because that was a brown movie. Oh, yeah. 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 But, you know what? Drink it again. You can have it twice. It's been long enough. There's got to be another boring the brown you can nut try. brown. Drink a nut brown. Nut think about how people nut, went yeah. nuts over this case. Nut. Nut. Well, that was my pick. I've had... Kind of two duds in a row. <laughs> yeah, you have. <laughs> so I hope you can save us this week. I think I can. Can at, you? At least for our listeners. I'm not 100% sure how you're going to feel about it yet. Because this is a movie that we've both seen before. Okay. It's been a really long time since we've honored a request. And I feel like it's time. We had a request, or I had a request quite some time ago from one of our listeners. Um, her Instagram name is Witch of the Wildflowers. I had made a post about this movie because I'd watched it again. And the first time I watched this movie, I did not like it at all. 
And after I'd seen it the first time, I heard so much about it from people who absolutely adore this movie and got so much out of it. And I, I heard so many different takes on it that it made me want to revisit it and watch it again. And when I did, it slaps. It's awesome. <laughs> we are going to be watching It Follows. All right. I had a feeling you were going to pick that. Yeah, Not beforehand, it, but as you were talking about it. It's one of those movies that deserves a rewatch from a different perspective. And I think that if you go into this movie like I did this time around, think of it as a dream or a movie that uses dream logic and you will enjoy it so much more because it really has a lot going for it. Okay. Cool. I really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. Yeah. At the very I've least. Actually, after yeah. you talked about it last time and you were kind of giving me some different lenses to view it through, the idea made more sense to me. Yeah. And so I'm ready and looking forward to rewatching it. Through those lenses. As, as a dream. Very cool movie. I really liked it. And I'm excited to talk about it. At the very least, it'll be a good conversation. So I'm excited. Very cool. All right. So if you haven't seen It Follows, which I think most people have at this point, definitely check it out. And you guys know where to find us. If you don't, you can follow us on Instagram at Blood, Fear, and Beer Podcast. And if you would like to request a movie, suggest a beer for us or just say hi, you can email us at bloodfearandbeer at gmail.com. And if you want to say some nice things about us, we really like that. <laughs> if you feel like saying something nice. But only can, if you mean it. Only if you mean it. You can do that by leaving a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. If you want to say something mean, do it on get Instagram. and go <laughs> listen to something else. Or do it on Instagram, but only in the private messages. Well, until next time, keep it spooky. Cheers. Join us again for another episode of Blood, Fear, and Beer. Night, night. <laughs>